All right, if you will open in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. It's good to, to be back uh, in the pulpit after a couple of weeks of intense schooling. I'm really thankful that... Uh, that Mark and, and Joel covered to, to give me the chance to, uh, to continue in some of my studies. And, um, but I'm very excited to come back, come back preaching. I've been studying Colossians 3, these few verses uh, this week. And I'm thinking there might be a number of different sermons wrapped up in, in these few verses. So let's look together at Colossians chapter 3. We'll read 1 through 4. Hear hear God's powerful word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray again for God's blessing on his word. Oh God, we've called to you numerous times and we continue because our need is continual. I pray now that you would fill the preaching of your word with power by your spirit. That you would bring clarity to what is unclear and that you would bring life to where there is death. That you would bring new understanding where there is confusion. And you would bring hope where there is despair. Accomplish all this for the glory of your name. Help me as I seek to serve your people, I pray. In your name, amen. I've often wondered why our school systems in general tend to traumatize children by having them read very hard books early on. Now before I alarm some of you, I'm all for reading hard books and making children read hard books. But I've wondered sometimes when we have uh, students read some of these priceless works of literature before they're old enough to understand or appreciate them and perhaps ruin them. It seems to, it seems to backfire sometimes or at least that's how it began with me. I remember when I was in high school, I was supposed to read portions of Don Quixote. Did anyone read part of Don Quixote? Show of hands. You all look at you, you're all traumatized by this experience, right? I mean, just imagine sitting in a classroom with a bunch of 10th graders and encourage them to read a book where a man tries to fight a windmill, which he believes is a giant, right? It's not taken very seriously. Uh, yet my tastes changed. It's a strange classic where a man basically loses his mind, ironically, because he does so much reading. He comes to think that he is a knight and travels across the Spanish countryside, fighting imaginary battles and engaging in noble pursuits, most of which are, are fantasy. The man's name is Alonso, and he's the main character. He's a man who is of slight, thin stature, mid-50s, loves books, especially books that were on the codes and, and the, the deeds and tales of chivalry. 
I'm very sympathetic with this character because he basically, as he progresses in his reading, begins to sell off all that he owns to buy more books. Especially on, on this topic of chivalry. He reads them so diligently and so frequently and sleeps so little that he eventually sort of loses his mind. It depends on how you interpret the book. But uh, the book says that from little sleep and too much reading, his brain dried up and he lost his wits. Which is how I felt driving home from my second seminar last week. He had a fancy to turn his passion into reality, his passion for chivalry, and travel through the world with horse and armor and such in search of adventures to redress all manners of wrongs. And so that's what he does. He, the problem is, is that he's sort of uh, delusional. He finds rusty old armor to wear and pretends or imagines or believes it to be uh, majestic. He recruits a tall but skinny old lame horse to be his noble steed. He, he needs to be knighted, apparently by the lord of a manor, but he can't get anyone to do that. So he settles for an innkeeper uh, to, to knight him. Well, of course, he needs a lady to protect, so he finds a random farm girl and recruits her as his matron in distress. At one point, he attacks, I think early on in the book, he attacks a group of unsuspecting salesmen, traveling salesmen, because they failed to give proper recognition to her beauty, though she was perhaps not. He famously uh, gets into a fight with a windmill, believing it to be a giant. And in my favorite instance, he steals a barber's basin because he thought it was a helmet. The point I want you to notice is this. Don Quixote had set his mind and fixed his heart on a version of reality that was so intense and he was so convinced that it reoriented his life. Will you, will you go there with me, right? He, he was so convinced of this reality that it changed the way that he viewed the world. And he was able to view the world in a way that others couldn't. They couldn't see what he saw. He was so persuaded by his beliefs that, that they drove him to do outrageous things. Things that, according to the world, seemed crazy. It's because they couldn't see what he could see. Now I realize that Don Quixote was delusional. But what if he wasn't? What if everyone else was, and, and for a moment, if they were suddenly able to, to see the world that Don Quixote saw? Suddenly all his strange ways and his strange pursuits and his strange imagination would suddenly make sense. In Colossians chapter 3, actually in the book of Colossians, Paul is trying to persuade the church at Colossae of a spiritual reality that changes everything. He's trying to help the church develop spiritual eyes to see life and to see their world, especially in the context of false teaching, in a way that lines up with true reality. But it's a reality that is not seen with the eyes. The problem with this reality for the church at Colossae and for our church, for us today, is that there are spiritual realities that we know are true, we've been told are true, and we accept by faith, but we can't see them 
It makes them hard to believe. For example, think of some difficulty or discouragement you had in the last few days. I'm quite certain that in that difficulty and discouragement, you would have felt very different if you had before you a clear vision of what it will be like as an adopted son or daughter of God, with God, in eternity, forever. Right? It would change the way you deal with your struggles. And even if we believe this and grasp this by faith, we struggle to take hold of it. We as Christian people are a people who are overly dependent on faith. By overly, let me rephrase that. Back up. We as a people tend to be overly dependent on what we can see. And yet as God's people, God has called us to see things by faith. We know that there's more to our world than what meets the eye. There's more than things that we can just see. For example, just because you cannot see carbon monoxide or flu germs or radio waves, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. You just need different instruments to see them, right? To understand them, to study them. Well, Paul is calling for us to take up the instrument, the proper instrument, the instrument of faith. Not a microscope or telescope or antenna, but faith. And through faith, to see spiritual realities that are absolutely just as true. Perhaps could we say, truer than true? Than things like radio waves and flu germs. To take them by faith. To use spiritual eyes to see God's true reality. And that reality, when we come to understand it, changes everything. And I really mean everything. And that's the main idea of this text this evening. That those who have been raised up with Christ now live and now must live and are compelled to live a totally new life. A totally new life. You'll notice that this text begins with a condition. Perhaps your translation, the first word there in chapter 3, verse 1 is if. If is a very important word, right? It signifies a condition. means that if condition A is true, then condition B or statement B will follow. The first condition is true, then all these other things can apply. If you serve 20 years in the military then you may be eligible to receive retirement benefits, right? If you throw a match into a gas can, then you imagine the rest, right? That's how conditions work. And we'll talk more about this if statement later, perhaps on Sunday. But the key thing to understand right now is that Paul is understanding the incredibly practical teaching that is coming up in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He's understanding all that to be a building upon what is being said in chapters 1 and 2. That these conclusions that he's getting ready to make, these practical life applications, flow out of the theological realities that he has been describing for us. And what I've found to be true is that the more we understand these theological realities, the more we take hold of them. And the more real they are to us. I suppose if I knew anything about radio waves, I would appreciate radio waves more than someone who does, right? 
pitiful example, but that isn't that isn't that the case? When we when we understand things poorly, we can't grasp them and their implications. Paul's whole ethic for living, his whole practice, his his practical Christianity was deeply rooted in the theological gospel realities that he has covered in these first two chapters. I hope that you are hearing and seeing that theology is practical. That what you believe about God affects the way that you live. And it should change your life. The call here, especially in these few verses, I'm going to spend extra time on this because this is a transition point in the book. The call here is to recognize is for Christians to recognize the implications that come from these spiritual realities. Realities that we cannot see. And so what that means for us tonight is we need to think a little bit, we need to review briefly, we might do even more later, about that Pauline phrase, in Christ, or with Christ. We, we, we call these, uh, the, the doctrine of the un, our union with Christ, being united with Christ. It's one of those doctrines that just makes me scratch my head so much because it feels just, just beyond me. We've spent a fair amount of time on that in the past, but I thought we could review a little bit tonight. Because it's so important to see this, this link. Paul is saying, look down at uh, verse 1 again, right? The condition is, if you have been raised with Christ. Okay, who was at the tomb and was dead and stood up alive with Christ, right? We, we, we weren't there. So this is not a physical description, but there is a spiritual dimension that's going on here, right? He's saying, if you have been raised, and there's our phrase, with Christ. Paul is saying that everything that he has to say is built upon this understanding of our union with Christ, on our understanding this union of Christ. There's a pattern of being united to Christ in spiritual death and in spiritual resurrection. I'm going to try, I've worked I'm trying to simplify this in a way that would be clear. So I've I've kind of boiled this down to three phases. And it might help you to write it write down the three the three phases and we could see this all over the Bible, especially Paul's letters, uh, but particularly we'll just pick some from Colossians, okay? So, so three pattern, three stages in this pattern of this this uh, pattern of spiritual death and resurrection. The first one is this: you learn Christ by faith. Learning Christ by faith. Look down at uh, chapter one, verse four. Paul is thanking God for the faith since we heard of your faith. Do you see it in Christ Jesus? Colossians 1 verse 4, those who are spiritually alive have learned, they have placed faith in Christ because they have learned that Christ has died for them. All right, it's Christianity 101. And it's not only that Christ has, has served as our substitute, but that he is also our representative. We learn, we hear that Christ died for us But then we also come to understand that we died with Christ. 
This is our union with Christ. And that he rose for us, yes, but we rose with him. We are united to him through faith. Faith is the glue that sticks us to him. And so our spiritual life begins with this union. It begins when we take hold of this reality by faith. So we learn of Christ and take hold of it by faith. The second phase is being baptized into his death. You can see that there in chapter 2 verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were uh, also raised with him through faith. There it is again. In the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now we've already looked at this text and we don't have time to look at all this tonight. But one of the things to remember about baptism is that it signifies union. That's part of the picture that we are, remember, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, as we'll see in a moment. That there is, there is a union that is signified. We're baptized into his death. In Romans, it describes being buried with him in baptism. That's why we say that, that phrase. So baptism includes a spiritual death. Remember, we talked about Christ's death as a baptism and as a circumcision as well. Baptism includes spiritual death. Just as Christ died, so too do we die to sin. We die to our old way of life and then we raise to a whole new life as we're raised with Christ, which brings us to the third stage where we share in the resurrection life. And this is what is so applicable tonight. You see it there in 3.1, that if you've been raised with Christ, do you see the pattern here? We learn Christ to receive Christ by faith that unites us to him and all of his accomplishments. We then profess this faith as we are baptized. That's why baptism is so crucial as a sign of obedience for the believer. But there's also a spiritual death that takes place. That just as Christ died on the cross to sin, so too do our old selves die. That's why Paul said, I have been, what, crucified with Christ. There's a death that takes place. But when we rise with Christ, we must remember we rise to a whole new life. To a resurrection life. And brothers and sisters, if you have faith in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are living in that resurrection life now. And it's going to get a lot better. In that resurrection life, the power of sin is broken. And we are free to live solely for the glory of God. You see, we have to understand that when Jesus rose from the dead, he ushered in a whole new reality. A whole new way of being. A whole, we could say a whole new world order. When Jesus rose, he inaugurated or he introduced a new system, a new world order. One where the power of sin is broken. Soon where the spirit dwells among God's people and the church goes forth in power and in mission. 
Here in Colossians 3, Paul is making a pivot. He's hinging away from some of this meaty doctrine and and the controversy to describe how Christians function in this new life. How this new life affects your marriage and affects your work relationships and affects your language and affects the things that you sing about. We're going to see all that in Colossians 3 and 4. This new resurrection reality changes things. It's a new world order. You see, here's the key. Here's what we have to understand. For those who have been raised with Christ, we must also renounce the old way of life. Our old way of thinking, our old patterns of behaving, our old affections, and our old desires, the way that we used to act, we must renounce all of that because it doesn't make sense in the new life. We'll see this logic working itself out. Why would I commit a sin knowing and understanding that Christ died for that very thing? Right? And of course, we struggle with this. We must renounce the old way. The power of sin has been broken in our lives, and so we no longer, praise God, function according to the slavery of sin. That's what Paul means when he says that we're no longer slaves to sin. We're called to reflect the values of this new inaugurated kingdom, a, a place where Christ is king. Which means that I've totally set aside my agenda because I've bought into the king's agenda. It's a new reality. So so I, I I know this is deep stuff, right? But do you see the logic that's going on here? Let's make it simple. If you've been raised with Christ, then this is how you live. That's what's happening, right? If these things are true about you, then this is how you live. And I'm afraid this is where we get confused, especially in the South, especially in America. We get confused about the Christian life. We forget that it is a totally different life. It is completely different from the world. Listen to Paul's summary in Romans chapter 6, which is a parallel passage to the same ideas here. Let's listen to the logic and hear it in Paul's words, and maybe this will click more. Listen. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It, it doesn't even make sense. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, listen, we too might walk in newness of life. That newness of life is what Paul is describing. That newness of life is what God intends for you now to enjoy communion with him, freedom from sin, power by the Spirit, love and affection for others, the, the selfishness of your heart broken. That's the new life that Christians are raised to. We're talking about walking in newness of life. And this passage gives us some characteristics of this resurrection life. 
And I will not get through them all, so I'm not even going to tell you how many there are. Because I don't want you to think, my goodness, he only got through one of five. Let's let's look at some of the characteristics of this resurrection life. The first thing to notice, and we'll build on this quite a bit next week, is that this new reality, this new resurrection reality, is currently invisible. You can't see it. The new reality is currently invisible. But... It's coming in fullness. It's coming in fullness. Let's just think about some of the obvious points here, right? We have been talking about all these spiritual concepts. That's why your head hurts a little bit right now, right? Things that you cannot see. But the things that I've said that are spiritually true does not mean that those realities are any less true than this podium. They're not any less true. They are absolutely just as true. We're talking about a death, a spiritual death that we cannot see. But it's true. A baptism we cannot see, except for in the ordinance. A union that we cannot see, even a Christ that we haven't seen. But all these realities are very real, and they, and they affect and include some physical realities, all of which are anchored to it. Notice there in verse 4, we're reminded that these will one day give way to sight when we will appear, appear, see, be seen with Christ in glory. We will be physically with Christ just as we are spiritually in Christ now. These are real realities. But look down there in verse 3. I'm starting here because I think it all builds off this concept. Verse 3, you have died... And your life is hidden. It's hidden with Christ in God. This new life that we speak of is in some ways, perhaps many ways, it's hidden. We can't see it. All of these realities are coming in fullness, but we are not in them all yet. We do not see them all yet. There are tons of realities like this in the Christian life. For example... Satan, sin has been defeated, and yet I sin today. Death has been defeated, yet our church is grieving a number of deaths. Satan has been conquered, yet evil continues. Jesus said his kingdom is here, yet not all obey and submit to him. We often call this the now, not yet tension in the Bible. Realities and promises and fulfillments that have come and they are here, but they are going to be here in greater fullness later. And so many spiritual realities from the Old Testament uh, are like this, that were fulfilled in Christ. They have brought real change, but they are not complete in fullness. This hidden revealed pattern is really common in in Jewish thought and I think will help us understand this, right? So remember we're thinking about verse 3. What does he mean when he says our life is, is hidden with Christ? Well, in Jewish thinking, they would understand, and I think we can understand this pretty easily, that there are many things about God and many things about his purposes and many things about his plan which exist now, but we just can't see them, right? God has plans and actions and things that he's doing that we can't see. They're real, we just can't see them. 
There are all sorts of things that are taking place in heaven right now that are real and we just cannot see them. All right, that's, that's easy to understand, right? We, we believe them. They are in heaven, so they are hidden from us. But sometimes, God allows people to have a glimpse of these realities, right? God has historically allowed people to have visions like Jacob or Joseph or Daniel or famously John in the, in the, in the, in the book of Revelation, to, to give them a glimpse, to pull back the curtain of what the world will be like when these things come to pass and when they will be seen by everyone else. It's this apocalyptic picture. They're realities that are real, but they're hidden and only partially revealed. I think Paul is saying, hey, your new identity is like that. It's real, but it's hidden. It's very real. God's kingdom is real. Your new identity is real. But you can't see it fully just yet. But one day, brothers and sisters, we're reminded that all that will change. Listen as I read from a couple of different texts. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And since these realities have been hidden, we can't even imagine how glorious this will be. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You lack the imaginative capacity to begin to put together the glorious reality that is your life coming. You're not, you're not smart enough. You, can't, you don't have enough computing power to get the picture of what God has prepared. Do you see how this strengthens faith even now? In a moment... We will realize one day when this new reality becomes fully inaugurated and when, when faith gives way to sight, one day we will realize this has been true all along. And do you not think that we will look back with regret that we didn't live in light of that reality? We'll realize that this has been the one true reality all along. With every one of my kids, I've had the experience of toying with their concrete thinking, right? This is what good loving parents do. And before you judge me, just wait, right? We play peekaboo. Ah, yeah, you do it too, don't you, right? Peekaboo. Now, Roman has now moved past this, but, but you know what I'm talking about, right? I sit in front of my son, I cover my face with my hands, and then suddenly, from my son's perspective, his father is gone. Does, what a traumatic thing to do, to play with a child, right? I love you, son. Hello, hello, hello. Gone, right? You don't even, and all he sees is hands and a wall. And, and if you've ever, have you ever seen kids who are traumatized by peekaboo? And we're like, ah, right? And, and suddenly, his father, whom I presume he loves, just disappears from his life. And then suddenly, he's back making funny faces again, right? And suddenly, he tragedy strikes, and again, he disappears. And for a few agonizing moments, dad is gone. Where did he go? Will he leave me? 
More importantly, where is my milk coming from, right? Who will feed me? And then suddenly, like magic, daddy reappears. Brothers and sisters, there is a reality, God's reality that is hidden behind a curtain. And it is real. And we are called to live in light of that reality. We are staring at the back of hands. But God is calling us by faith to look through and see what he is telling us to be true. About our identity, about Christ, about God, about what God delights in, and how we should live. We don't know this very well, but one day this curtain will be removed and we will know it very well. I was thinking, I thought of a C.S. Lewis quote when I was considering this. C.S. Lewis in, in his, uh, his, his essay, The Weight of Glory, said this. And I think it picks up on, on how we struggle to live in light of eternal realities. Listen to this. He says, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Now, he's not talking about becoming gods in the Mormon sense, right? He, he, he's talking about uh, humans are immortal. He says, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. This is why we are, this is why without faith it is impossible to please God. Because faith is how the Christian reaches out and takes hold of things unseen. God has called us to live in light of many invisible, glorious, but hidden realities. And that's why the Gospels are constantly saying, hey, it's all been made known to us now in word. And we're waiting to see it with sight. So when Paul says here in verse 3... Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I think that's what he's saying. Our new lives are hidden. But we are called to live them and take hold of them nonetheless. And remember, they won't be hidden forever. Verse 4 reminds us of that. When Christ, who is your life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. So we want to live in light of this ultimate reality. It's the main point. That's why I'm belaboring this. I do want to add one other uh, point on this, this phrase here that there might be another layer of meaning here. And I, was, I didn't want to skip out on this. this uh, we're, st- <laughs> we're still on this phrase, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And we'll build on this later. But I think there could be another layer of, uh, for the word hidden in the sense of safety, right? Your life is safe. It is safely secured in Christ. There's a sense of safety. The word that's used here, uh, it can carry the sense of, of hiding in a safe place. I have many examples of this in my home. My daughter Karis is very skilled at hiding her toys in a safe place so that snotty little hands of her brother and her sister cannot get them. We've noticed that she often enjoys hiding their toys in a safe place so that they cannot get them, right? But she understands the principle. If you want to keep something safe, or or if you want to steal it, 
You put it safely, you hide it away. I suppose God can do that too. Listen to Psalm 27.5. Listen to these words in the midst of your trouble. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Where does God keep his children for safekeeping? Where does he hide them? In Christ. Oh, don't we need to take hold of this glorious reality by faith? Brothers and sisters, if you are hidden in Christ, who can harm you? What could Satan do? How could he get to you? Can your failures, can your temptations, can Satan himself, what about hardship, what about death, can any of that get to you? You see, in the chaos of the not yet realities, the kingdom is pretty dangerous. But we have this promise of a new life, a life with all these blessings and glories that are permanently secured and tucked away in Christ. And as we will see next week, this includes our identity, our true self, and all that it entails. Isn't that a comforting thought, O Christian struggling with sin? That your safety and your security don't depend on your ability not to sin, your maturity or your character. It all depends on Christ because you've been hidden in him. God is the author of salvation. He's writing the story and he will see it through to the end. So be comforted by that. Go home, meditate on these verses, and then we'll put all this together next time. All right, let me close this in prayer and you'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this glorious reality that you've hidden us in Christ, that we have died with him, and that we have been raised with him. So help us, like him, to live a resurrection life that is fully pleasing to you, focused on bringing you glory. Help us... I uh, eagerly await the day where we will see you. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.